welcome to the Bartender Atlas podcast. I'm your host, Josh Lindley. As per usual, bringing you a discussion with an industry leader. Uh, if you enjoy what you're hearing, please go rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends all about the Bartender Atlas podcast. A lot of people talk about mentors in bartending, and having a mentor is important. Having someone that can help you to reconsider your approach to anything, not only bar-related, but life-related, is an important person to have. But that knowledge can't just flow in one direction, which is why I would hesitate to call this episode's guest my mentor, but she is definitely a friend and has a lot of perspectives on bartending, on cocktails, flavor composition, and maybe most importantly, the overall business of hospitality that I rarely find in other areas and with other people. So, if someone wanted a one-word answer to who my bartending mentor is, it would be my guest, Christina Kuypers. Christina Kuypers is the Senior Vice President of Revenue Management for Cineplex Canada. I know usually on the Bartender Atlas podcast, we deal with people running smaller independent businesses, uh, bars, events, you know, blogs, whatnot. But given where the world is right now and with new and weird regulations changing all the time, having someone that hasn't followed any path but her own into this direction felt like the right person to host. If you're trying to figure out new ways of approaching your hospitality career, you will want to hear everything Christina has to say. We talk about managing college pubs, creating cocktails for Diageo, trying to open a new spot and failing and how you deal with that, psychology and how it relates to forming bar teams, how you should always go to job interviews, and how imposter syndrome in and of itself isn't a bad thing, but it's really what you do with it and how you force your way through it. She also spent some time in Dubai. I know we have a lot of bartenders there, and I know I haven't spoken to anyone from Dubai, so hopefully this is something for you if you happen to be there. Another thing to keep in mind, uh, please, is that there are some tech glitches. As much as we're all getting used to the skips and lags of video conferences right now, I never want you, the listener, to be put off by any of it. So, apologies for that. Enough from me. Here's Christina Kuypers on the Bartender Atlas podcast. Hey, so, Christina Kuypers... What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I guess, you know, the future work in beverage was a little preordained in the fact that my dad thought it was essential to teach me fractions by mixing in cocktails uh, when I was about four or five years old. So that certainly helped. Uh, But, you know, I think that growing up, I was always really clear on the idea that I wanted to help people and that I wanted to work with people. So in that I was social and in that, you know, medicine was definitely uh, a profession that, you know, had woven its way through my family's history. But what was interesting is I didn't realize that how it would manifest in my actual life was really about hosting and entertaining and taking care of people in a very different way, not medically, maybe, uh, but, you know, entertaining and, and in terms of hosting people and providing emotional support and helping people in the context of, you know, support and, and camaraderie and providing a place for people to meet and get together. And so it's it's funny how things turn out. I think that the, the core elements of what we gravitate to ring so true. And you just have to let yourself kind of find that path and, and be open to where it takes you. So was that a long way of saying you wanted to be Patch Adams? <laughs> Totally. And you know what? Very on the nose of the movies. When you were young, I know this from hanging out with you, but you had a very unconventional upbringing. Uh, Usually I talk with people about where they went to school and what cliques they fit into and whatnot. But uh, you moved around a lot. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you want the world's least concise answer to where are you from, where'd you grow up? I mean, you know, and that's uh, that's a bit of a self dig on my ability to you know converse at length. But it's also genuinely a depiction of how complicated it is to dis- to discuss my upbringing. I mean, I was born in Vancouver, uh, and my parents are from the Philippines and from the Netherlands, and so uh, as unlikely a combination as any. Uh, sort of, you know, cultures from a hat, if you will. But they met uh, in Manila, uh, moved to Hong Kong. And then um, after they were married, moved to Vancouver. And that's where I was born. And then from there, we moved to uh, to Sweden, to Holland, uh, to Switzerland, to Belgium. Uh, we traveled around quite a lot there, um, to England, and then back to Canada, but settled in uh, in the, you know, more in the GTA. So, I spent most of my childhood in Europe and the amazing part about it was, you know, and you, you only appreciate these things more so in hindsight, because, you know, having to leave your friends and learn a new culture, every a new language every couple of years was definitely really hard as a kid. But the parts that you really remember are all the amazing adventures. So when you were bouncing around Europe like that, where were you living? Like, was it new apartments all the time or was it different hotels? What was uh, what was your living arrangement like? So usually because it was arranged through my dad's work, we would move to a new house or new apartment. But it was usually apartments. And, you know, as particularly in Europe, I mean, it's very common. And the apartments that I'm talking about are not the, you know, as I look around my own condo, you know, these incredibly compact spaces. These are apartments that you live in, that you have a family in, that you spend your life in. Uh, so that was never the challenge in terms of, you know, space. I think that, you know, we're very lucky to have lots of places that we could explore. And, you know, we're also lucky too in that whenever we lived in these new places, we lived pretty centrally. And so again, you know, kind of harkening back to the more traditional European way of life, but walking to the bakery and going, you know, into the butcher shop. And I know it wasn't always so quaint, but so many of the places that we lived, whether it was Karlstad in, uh, in Sweden or Wagensville, which is, uh, you know, just outside of Zurich, or uh, a little town in Belgium called Anu in the French side, you know, where there literally was a live animal market on, you know, weekly. And, uh, and I campaigned hard to get like a baby chick every, every week uh, to no avail. But it, these, were, these were really part of the European experience was very much living in the village or being close to these towns or city centers and, and really experiencing them as opposed to being in the suburbs or being far removed from, you know, the nucleus of that, uh, of that community. So that was amazing, especially because I discovered, you know, as my dad was doing a lot of traveling and working and, and my mom through that time had, had really devoted her, you know, her time to me, we just, we, the two of us would explore every new place that we moved to, which was an amazing opportunity to discover, to taste, to see, to smell, uh, all of those different, you know, sites and, and places and different foods and cultures and learn the languages, uh, which is a lot easier when you're a kid. We did all that together. And I think that that gave me a real sense of appreciation for, you know, although it's hard to leave things behind, there was so much new to experience that became, you know, really, really exciting. And have you managed to hang on to any of those languages at all? 
Yeah, you know, Swiss German's a little difficult. Uh, it's hard to find an audience. Uh, it's difficult to find people to practice that with. Uh, you know, my French isn't exactly where I'd want it to be, but it's it's still there. Uh, and Dutch is well conversational. Um, I did speak uh, Tagalog, which is the Filipino language, uh, a little bit. But, you know, what ends up happening as you grow older is you lose kind of the vocabulary as it relates to your age group. And you end up just kind of honing in on food requests and swear words mostly. I mean, <laughs> so I'd say I have no regrets about that because in the end you actually find that it becomes the most useful long term. Uh, but, you know, it. It's amazing because I think learning languages gives you, A, you know, the humility to understand that communicating with other people just goes so much further when you even stumble through a few terrible sentences and wrong words to make the effort to speak, you know, in the language of their kind of homeland. Um, but it also just, you know, B, makes you think differently and store information differently. And I think that there's some really cool stuff that happens when you learn language or music that shapes you as a person without you even really knowing it. When you guys all settled back towards the greater Toronto area, where exactly did you land? And then were you about high school aged at that point? Yeah, it was about middle school. Um, and, you know, my dad was working in Toronto and my mom, you know, after looking around at all these different neighborhoods, she just really wanted to make sure that after all the displacement and all the times we moved around that, you know, that we had somewhere safe and stable to be. And, and, uh, so we actually settled in Oakville and, uh, she was just, you know, good old Filipino mom was very intent on giving me an all girls private school education, bless her heart. So she actually went back to work so that I could go to school at St. Mildred's in Oakville. And, uh, you know, probably didn't appreciate it as much at the time, but again, uh, you know, she really was looking out for my best interests. And, uh, and so that's why we ended up, uh, living there, you know, for many years until I went to university. And what did you go to university for? Well, you know, I always find this to be a fun thing. I had every intention of studying the sciences because, again, at that point, I was still like, okay, you care about people. you got to go and pursue medicine. This is the thing to do. And, you know, there's a little bit of that, you know, the heritage and experience of, you know, of being first-generation Canadian and having your parents encourage you to pursue these, you know, professional uh, pathways. But, you know, in the end, um, I studied psychology and political science, and then I, I finished off with some diplomas in management studies and, and human resource management. I did some business courses afterwards um, because I just really also wanted to learn more about how to manage. And what happened was I started working in a few bars and restaurants, and I worked at the campus bar at Mac for a long time, and I really loved it. And I wanted to understand how to make a go of it professionally. And, you know, and it started with bartending. It became management and event planning. And so to formalize that, because there really was no kind of school for the bar arts at the time, and there was no way to formalize that uh, that professional path, cobbled together some different courses and, and studies uh, that, you know, complemented it and really just gave me at least the foundation of understanding of how to, you know, how to operate a business, um, you know, and, and how to understand how businesses work. Um, of course, nothing better than the practical experience itself, but so interesting to see kind of what you start off with. And then, you know, four or five years later, what you come out of school with is, uh, is well, it's a hell of an education, but not all of it is from books. Well, you mentioned before, too, before getting into business management and event planning and then working in bars, you were studying psychology. Do you find that that directly affects how you managed bars and worked in bars when you started? 
I think that particularly as a course called, you know, social psychology really rang uh, true for me in understanding that that behaviors, you know, are really grounded in societal influence. And so combining that with the experience I had growing up and always being the new kid. I mean, I was the new kid in every class. I was the new kid in every community and building that we moved into and recognizing that it was so important to have empathy and and acknowledge that people come from such different backgrounds and it, and it doesn't necessarily have to be as dramatic as different countries, but it certainly can. It's also how you grew up socioeconomically, how you grew up in terms of cultural influences in your family, where you grew up and how that influenced you as, as you, um, you know, as you progressed and, and what I think was really helpful in, in how I could certainly apply it in, you know, in the uh, the hospitality world was recognizing that, you know, there's this kind of beautiful collision that happens between, you know, the diversity of the guests that you have and also the diversity of the staff that you have. And man, is it ever a, a drama, a comedy, a horror, a, you know, a, a suspenseful thriller. It is, it is all those things in one, um, as you can attest to in the many places that you and I work together. It's amazing to observe that human behavior and rituals and ideas and perspectives, you know, all kind of come into one place. And, and I think the, the real objective on any one of those shifts first was how do we kind of bring out the best in everyone to have the best time possible? And then from a sustainment standpoint, how do we create a community, you know, that, that appreciates and and I think often to you know the times that you and I uh, work together and and those were some of the most interesting and certainly uh, challenging times because you know people were young and we were all young my goodness uh, we were young we were exciting and you know we were we're living these exciting lives and we were trying to you know just capture this essence of life and and you know and appreciate and learn what each other's experiences were. Yeah, it uh, really does lay a, a bedrock for everything that I know I've gone on and done and what you've done, especially uh, something that I think, I mean, we'll get into it a little more later, but something I think is really cool is you with that bedrock have expanded in, um, you know, a direction that a lot of successful bartenders and bar managers don't necessarily consider as being a way to go. But before we get there, after working in college pubs and, and uh, university bars around Hamilton, what do you do after that career-wise? Well, I applied to work at um, – actually, to be fair, I applied to do two things. I applied to work at the Drake Hotel and found out that that summer of 2006 that I'd sort of missed the boat on summer hiring. Um, and I, you know, I recall being a little disappointed, but, you know, I said, hey, it was worth it. And what I've learned throughout my life is that, you know, interview all the time, just apply for things and don't apply indiscriminately, but just, you know, you'll, you'll never get what you don't apply for. And even the experience of interviewing is always amazing, um, because you learn so much. But I'd also applied to work at the Calgary Stampede. <laughs> so I uh, got a call um, because, you know, that's how people actually communicated as they phoned you back in the day. Um, and I got this job at the Roadhouse in Calgary. And you know, at the time, you know, coming out of school, uh, not having a ton of money, uh, a friend of mine, we packed up my car and we decided to drive there. And it was kind of amazing because we decided to just wing it. And we lived and worked there for two weeks 
um, and it was insane. It was everything that you would expect uh, the you know the Calgary Stampede to be, especially when you're in the epicenter of it. You know, just pumping up the crowds, being completely immersed in this wacky time when, you know, even the most affluent and the most conservative people you could imagine are out there at you know 10 a.m. cowboy boots, cowboy hat, big buckles, neckties. Uh, those string neckties, just drinking and having a good time, you know, all day long. It is, it was so crazy. It's cowboy cosplay. It's exactly cowboy cosplay, a hundred percent. And people completely leaned into it. It, uh, you know, it, it's an amazing microcosm of complete freedom. You know, again, like it was such an awesome experience to see people let loose, and and it wasn't just you know a, a particular demographic. I mean, like everyone was welcome, and it was a party, and every part of the Calgary Stampede too. Whether you actually go to the chuck wagon races and check out the different you know pavilion, um, or if you're just you know doing the bar crawls and and uh, and the pub tours, you know you you do get a real good flavor for how much you know people just are appreciative of that time to to get totally into roll um which was amazing because then uh when i drove back which was the other part of it that hey you know driving across the country is super fun until you realize you gotta come back uh so there was a long drive back but when i came back i found out that um although i missed out on the opportunity to work at the drake in the summer um, I remember uh, Mel Splat got in touch with me and, uh, and she's super amazing. And she, you know, she said, Hey, listen, I've got this opportunity. It's a little different, but essentially we would like for you to be the TIFF ambassador. Um, and I said, what is that? They said, well, you know, you basically have the face of the Drake and you welcome everybody um, and manage essentially the guest lists and, and are the, you know, the, the face of all these different events that we host during TIFF. And I thought, okay, well, that'll, you know, that's, that sounds interesting. I'll do that. It was wild. I mean, these are the heydays of the Drake where, you know, everybody wanted to be in that building and there just wasn't room. There just wasn't room. There was a, you know, tenfold demand for, you know, for space. There. And, you know, you, you were the gatekeeper and I worked with an amazing team, uh, security to, you know, to deal with that and to work through all the different events and all the different demands and learning all ways to get talent in ways to get vips in ways to get people who you know who knew someone who knew someone who who really just had to be inside and um it was chaos it was awesome it was such a great introduction into you know the the life and hospitality in toronto and so totally fell in love with it turned into a permanent gig became the bar manager there and uh and moved to toronto and so that was the the whole kind of impetus to to go there in all those interactions, do you have any hilarious or awkward celebrity encounters that you want to share, or do you keep that close to the vest? You know, if there's one thing I've learned, and and maybe this is one of the sort of secret ingredients uh, to you know progression in your professional life, it is all about discretion. <laughs> How long did you work at the Drake for? In total, three years, but it was uh, in kind of two chunks. I was uh, I was actually in Vancouver um, in between. So I worked at Drake for two years, um, just, you know, had all these amazing experiences. But, you know, as you well know, we, we also, as much as we worked, 
five or six days a week. I mean, we also partied eight nights a week. Um, and so I, I really, you know, had such an amazing experience, but also recognized that, you know, I wanted to experience a different lifestyle. And I was always curious about Vancouver because I was born there, but I didn't really live there for very long. Um, hadn't really experienced it. Um, so the, it was, you know, it was calling. It was also aligned really well with you know, it was. 2008, uh, end of 2008, beginning of 2009. I mean, who knew what was going to happen economically? And, you know, and I literally moved there, suitcase in hand, you know, uh, cash in hand, no no job, no real plan beyond knowing where I was going to stay, knowing that the Olympics were coming up and that I wanted, you know, to be part of that. And I think that, you know, whether it was the Stampede or TIFF uh, or, North by Northeast or, you know, all the different festivals and different experiences that we had around events. I, I definitely recognize that some of those early kind of movements were around these being part of these cultural moments. And so moved to Vancouver. Uh, I really had to start from the scratch. Uh, and then I worked at the Drake when I came back from Toronto again. Time in Vancouver, though, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you were born there, but you weren't so much raised there. When you went back to Vancouver, did was there a weird sort of uh, like spiritual connection to it? Oh, you know, I would say, yeah, you know, but I'll, let me start with the cultural problem, which is the fact that um, if you don't identify as Vancouverite, you can have a, a very interesting sort of reception. Uh, I remember on Georgia, there was this massive board at the time, and it's that Coors Light, colder than most people from Toronto. And I thought, oh, man, ouch, that's really tough. And so it was it was pretty difficult uh, initially meeting people. And, you know, first question, where you, where'd you come from? Where'd you move from? Because there's so many people who are new to Vancouver. And so it was just a bit of a jostling of, you know, who was there first? Um, so I really had to earn my stripes. And, you know, once you did, I had some of the most amazing people and, you know, and, and some of my closest friends. But, you know, it was slow going at first. And, and I think it's, it's so interesting the difference between the culture in you know Montreal versus Toronto versus Vancouver in terms of how welcoming people are but you know if there's anything I've learned from living in so many places is listen you know and and also from meeting so many people you know when some people over in an hour a day a week a month maybe never um or maybe years but it's you know you just have to again just go with an open mind and, and experience it. And I think that, you know, what really resonated for me was just, I really appreciate in Vancouver two things really that, that spoke to me because I have some family that live out there too. It's just how much more balanced the lifestyle is between, you know, outdoor activities and just your time off. So people have so many hobbies that they really throw themselves into that are so active and they make time for it. And the work life there is also very, you know, accepting of it too. It's it's just it's understood that it's a beautiful day. So you know, hey, yeah, I gotta I gotta get out to hike, or I'm gonna go to the beach, or I'm gonna hit the slopes. Um, and that was just such a different perspective. And the other part of it is just you know, there's multiple generations of Asian immigrants in Vancouver that have created a a culture and a community that you know, particularly for someone who's you know who's half Filipino, has been in this sort of mixed heritage experience throughout their whole life that really resonated with me to see uh, how differently communities can develop when they've had time you know and and it was it was an amazing window into what that you know what that how that shaped that city and the culture and, and not just you know the food and the and the drink and the the art really just how also people you know get along when 
they recognize, you know, that there's time that's been put in, that there's, you know, that the community is, is very open in that sense, um, which was a really cool experience as compared to, you know, other cities I've lived in. After Vancouver, you come back to Toronto, you worked at the Drake again for a little bit. Yeah, I was there for a year again when uh, I came back. And in what capacity? So at that time, I was an operations manager. And so I was more focused on, you know, less so the bar and more the, the full, you know, just how the building operated. And, and in particular, you know, really kind of working more so on the dining side. Uh, this is where I really watched you take sort of a leap and a turn that no one, like very <laughs> few people I've ever seen have actually made the move that you did. You went to go work for a giant company. I mean, the Drake Hotel in and of itself is quite the operation, especially now, but talking, you know, eight, nine years ago. Um, you left to go work for a restaurant and bar group that had several venues, all of them with different vibes, different ideas, concert venues, all the way down to cocktail bars. Tell us about that transition and how you made that decision. You know, um, I wouldn't be able to talk about working for Icon and eventually Icon and Inc. without talking about the, uh, you know, year and a half to two years of insanity in between, um, and by insanity, I mean, you know, by my own design, by my own making, by my own, um, you know, desire to kind of create and explore. And, you know, it meant working at Ursa. It meant working at The Hoof. It meant working at The Ritz. <laughs> it meant working for Diageo for two years through all that as one of their first brand ambassadors in Canada, um, which was really cool and really interesting. But, you know, all of that was because I was really trying to incubate a, a few ideas creatively. And I had been exposed to so many great things. And, you know, the, my time in Vancouver really exposed me to a level of quality and of execution of food and beverage, you know, that I was so impressed by. And it, the ingenuity and innovation and the entrepreneurial efforts there uh, just, you know, it took my conception of things to a different level. Um, and I think about places like Bell Bay that made a permanent imprint on my memory and, and, you know, and as you can see, still thriving today because of how amazing a concept it is, but even more importantly, how committed, um, you know, Tennis and Joel have been over the years to making sure that the concept stayed true to form, but also evolved and yet also provided an amazing consistency of experience that people kept coming back for. And I kind of pulled back into my own upbringing and heritage and you know, growing up with my dad and, and all the times that, you know, this big, tall Dutch dude would travel world, and, you know, he would tell me when we traveled together, too, he'd say, you know, we got to eat at these places. And I would kind of look at, look at him and go, well, why? And he's like, because no one like us is in this room. So therefore, it must be good. And regardless, it's worth a try. <laughs> and I thought that that sense of adventure and uh, that embracing of, you know, wanting to try uh, and have different cultural experiences was so amazing. And, you know, over the years, you know, he was, he was referred to as Guaylo, which is a white devil. And yeah, I mean, I'm loosely paraphrasing. Um, and I, I thought that was such a cool idea to, you know, bring forward a culture and a cuisine um, that, you know, many of us have experienced through either parents or friends or travel and, you know, to kind of celebrate the idea of being displaced and yet, you know, making it, um, a really welcoming experience. So there was a time when I was working on incubating that idea. Um, and now, you know, frankly, that uh, it's, you know, great to see that it 
the concept was in fact carried forward and is now existent as Dilo, but you know, the partnership didn't work and we moved on from that. And I think, you know, a lot of the, uh, just the shared experiences and, you know, you were a big part of that too. And, and many of our, our friends, it was such an amazing learning experience, but it also taught me a lot about what, you know, what you do with failure because, you know, there was a time when I, just things were not working. You know, it was so hard to get the financing locked in with the location, with, you know, the commitments for people. I mean, the uncertainty. And I know that's, you know, very interesting, particularly with what's going on today. But, you know, I felt a real sense of responsibility that people had made these commitments and I just couldn't give them, you know, permanent employment or, or even consistent employment. And so eventually I just had to call it quits and walk away, which was one of the hardest things that I'd ever gone through. Um, and it was really humbling and so necessary as a part of just my, my life and my learnings, um, to really feel like, you know, you, you just, everything you've built, sort of everything towards just kind of crashing down. It was so necessary to say, well, okay, but from that, you know, you've got to move forward. There's, there's more to be done. Do you feel like because, of taking on, you know, the project that ended up becoming Dilo and, and uh, all the other little, I mean, little in quotations at the time, they mean the world, but uh, all the other smaller projects that you'd been working on that didn't quite come together. Did that sort of lead you into the idea of working with a bigger organization and sort of having more of a support system for when you were doing those, when you were doing that work? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, two things became really, really painfully clear for me coming out of that. One is I really had to learn more about project management, you know, like it is, it is a real discipline. Um, and it's so necessary because again, you can have all these great ingredients, but you know, if you don't get the timing, right, if you don't get the proportions, right, uh, it's just not going to come together. And, um, and so that was really important. Um, and it was also secondly, really important to ask for help. And I learned a lot more about just how to, you know, really just open up and, uh, and, and, you know, sometimes you, you know, you may not want to make that call and I think about now especially as people are looking at what direction they're going to take their lives and their careers and I mean and I'm one of them if if I'm in your network or even if I'm not I mean and you think that I could give you some information or maybe introduce you to someone reach out I mean the worst thing that can happen is I might not see the message in my LinkedIn or my email account right away and I'll, and I'll have or I'll have to give it some thought and and come back to you a little later but you know it's very rare that someone's just going to say no or 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 not respond and I think that that's what I really learned and so what was really interesting is I was working at Diageo event at Fashion Week and I had uh, run into Hanif Harji, who, um, you know, has become over the years such a great friend and mentor. Um, but, you know, the open nude, a couple doors down from Drake, the Drake. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't really know him too, too well at that time. But I stopped him at Fashion Week and, uh, and I said, hey, listen, I've been working on this idea. And, you know, I'd love to run some things by you and ask you for some advice. Like, you know, could you could you give me some time? So he had asked me to meet him. Um, I had to follow up a couple of times and we met a few weeks later. And, you know, I told him my story. I told him what was going on, what was working and what really wasn't. And um, after listening to me, he paused. And if you know Hanif, you know, he he's, he's, he's quiet and he, he doesn't say a lot. But when he does, you know, you should really kind of listen up because great wisdom. And he said, um, OK, so okay, thinking about everything that you said, uh, my advice is that you come work for me. And I went, what? Because <laughs> at that time I hadn't yet contemplated 
ending this project or walking away from it. And so I went through this full, you know, just process of internalizing what that meant. Um, and the offer was to come and work as a food and beverage consultant in his, uh, at that time at, you know, at Legacy Hospitality, which at Patria, had West Watch, but was growing, was growing tremendously. And um, so I came on board and I started working alongside him and working on a number of projects that had to do with also consulting work. So working with, you know, top hotel brands like the Marriott, um, working with, you know, top retail like Holt Renfrew and working with also independent clients and working on concepts, uh, food and beverage concepts, restaurants, QSRs, uh, quick service restaurants, that kind of thing, in all these different settings, alongside also helping to build this portfolio that became, you know, 20 locations in Miami, Toronto, and uh, and Dubai. So because of that, uh, I just took this next big leap because then we started working with these partners in Dubai, and, he, and Hanif asked me, you know, just about a, a year in, hey, what do you think about moving to Dubai and running our operations there? And it's going to be, you know, some consulting work, but we're going to be opening restaurants. And, you know, it was great. It was such a great vote of confidence and also a great, I think, indication of the trust that we built in our relationship that, you know, I said, well, I'm not you know, qualified to do this. And, you know, there's so many times in my career where I've had, you know, imposter syndrome. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I, you know. And I know it may not seem like it, but the thing is, it's a practice of also recognizing that that keeps you humble, keeps mm -hmm. you hungry. It keeps you asking more questions, which is absolutely necessary. But there's going to be a point where you just have to take the leap and you have to believe in the fact that you will learn. Uh, and if you have people around you who can understand and you are patient with yourself or, you know, needing to make necessary mistakes along the way, uh, then, you know, you can pretty much do anything. So long story short, move to Dubai. That was insane. Um, I also got married like right before and bless you guys, your hearts. I mean, we, we saw you for brunch to tell you that we were going to get married. I mean, city hall, totally low key, pretty much secret wedding. Uh, just our parents, uh, our brother and sister-in-law, that was it. And, you know, I'll never forget just the looks in your faces, how loving and supportive you and Jess were, but also Jess saying, do you have a photographer? And I went, no, <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. To be honest, it was it was so uh, spontaneous and um, and really was so low key. I didn't even consider it. And she was so amazing. Um, and you know, if it wasn't for her, and I'm actually looking at one of our it's so funny sitting on my desk, one of our wedding photos, obviously. And I wouldn't have had those those um, memories, you know, captured if she hadn't offered. To be honest, um, so you guys will always plays such a big part in our lives, you know, um, just from how long we've known each other, but also just how kind you were to offer that and, uh, and that you were, you know, two of the first people to know. I also, I also know that Jess very much enjoyed shooting that wedding, but also maybe had a, a real realization where, uh, Jess, anyone that knows her knows that her personality is bigger than she is physically. And then shooting you two, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Ross being whatever, six, five and you being five, yeah. 10, five, 11, yeah. uh, and Jess yeah. being definitely neither of those heights. She really realized, <laughs> uh, maybe her actual physical space that she takes up. Anyhow, after your wedding, you move to Dubai and how long were you there for? I was there for a year. We, we didn't know how long we'd be there for. Um, it could have been five years. Um, but we went there with an open mind just saying, you know, this could be, this could be a long haul. We'll see. Uh, but um, I went, you know, we went and I think what was so interesting was right before we left, you know, there were some deals that fell through and there was some uncertainty about what I was going to do there. And so, I mean, talk about a test of, 
you know, your kind of conviction and your also your motivation. I mean, part of the hilarity of being employee number one manager of a company that is just forming in a new, you know, it, well, at least for, for the company itself, a new country, a new region, because the, uh, it's the GCC is what it's called, the Gulf Cooperation Council. That's the, and, um, and so I was to oversee any kind of business interest that could come up in, you know, Saudi Arabia, in Oman, in Qatar, but, you know, particularly focusing on the United Arab Emirates and um, specifically starting first in Dubai. But then I worked in, in the Emirates around there. So we had um, operations, in fact, as part of the consulting that took me to five of the different Emirates. So it was, it was a really cool experience, but, you know, you, you show up in this completely new country, new culture. And as an adult, it is, uh, so interesting because you, <laughs> I mean, it's all up to you. There's, there's no parent to tell you that this is the school you're going to, or this is what you're going to eat, or this is where we're packing, this is where we're going to live. And it's exciting and it's terrifying at the same time. Part of that was also, drumming up the consulting work. So some of it already was baked into the partnership we had, but others were simply as, you know, by nature of making introductions. And so I, you know, my parents, uh, we, the experience, you know, that we were always expats and all that. Until these different communities, you realize that the common experience that you do all have, no matter from where you are, you know, anywhere in the world is that this is a foreign place to you. And so, you know, it was amazing to meet all these different people from Nigeria, from Germany, from New Zealand, from Eritrea, from, you know, from, uh, it's from all over the place. And, um, you know, it was some of the friendships there, again, similar to the experience I had in Vancouver. I mean, some of my absolute best friends. And the bonding experience you have living in a foreign country like that, especially with a completely different culture uh, as well. Like, I mean, we had, you know, we experienced Ramadan for the first time. We experienced, you know, going to mosques for the first time and, and you know, and learning so much more about happening in that part of the world instead of, you know, the news media we consume here is so North American and, and what you, what you're actually exposed to, you know, I think somebody once said to me, Dubai is the New York for, you know, one and a half billion people. And, and that really resonated because, you know, you just, I had never really had insight into what's happening in Africa and what's happening in Central Asia and, uh, sorry, Central Europe and, and into Asia as, you know, the, you look at all the stands and all the countries that, you know, surround the Gulf Cooperation Council. And it was, it was so eye-opening, amazing, uh, and challenging. I mean, I think a lot of people certainly were not prepared to hear about the hard parts. I think a lot of people wanted to hear about the yacht parties and the crazy clubs and the restaurants and the beaches. And, and believe me, those things happen, but I can't sugarcoat it. It was, it was hard. It was, it was amazing. It was eye-opening. Um, and in the end, it only did last a year. I worked there for three years, but I only lived there for one. And uh, some of the businesses we open are running today. But, you know, I'll, I'll never regret having that experience because it was, uh, it was again, like any of the other um, travel or relocations I've had, you know, especially later in life. Uh, it was just such an amazing and educational experience. And, you know, it, uh, I think definitely changed the course of, of where I took my career after that because, you know, it really, again, dealing with that imposter syndrome, you, you kind of recognize, well, if I can do that, then, you know, what else can I do? <laughs> so, and, um, and at that point, Icon, you know, was uh, nearing about 15 locations. And what's challenging about that is they were all different brands. Um, it's, uh, you know, managing a, a chain of, of single brands is, is a different 
challenge than managing a portfolio of multiple brands because each concept, like Patria and Biblos and Figo, and you know, it, they're all so unique, different, and you know, you have to to hold dear what each concept is intended to be, which makes you know dealing with consistency of operations, um, you know, really necessary, but also really challenging because you can't, you know, you can't homogenize everything. There are so many things that make them, that make these businesses successful that are distinct and unique to that concept. But to operate a group and to create structure for scaling and growing the business that spans, you know, entertainment venues and, and, you know, catering and nightclubs and restaurants, all of those, you know, different businesses need different people to run them and that have different skill sets. And so that, again, came back to, you know, all the things I've learned about respecting different cultures and perspectives, needing to create consistency um, and, you know, and creating structure to make them succeed. But also understanding that, you know, a little bit of collision is is essential to making sure that each concept can be successful and, and each person can also contribute, you know, to the greatest potential that they have. A very long time ago when I worked in radio, I remember sitting in music meetings and having the talk about how you want, obviously, like when you're programming a radio station, you want it to sound like a mixtape and you want it to flow in and out of different things. But occasionally you want that train wreck. You want to go straight from a ballad into something very loud. Uh, and and because it, it, it demands more attention and you actually see what listeners are paying attention to and what they react to. And from the way you're talking about it, it sounds the same as far as managing and choosing and hiring staff for specific venues as well as you kind of want to see how two different people work together, even if in theory, they don't work together. You really do. And it's so important um, to, you know, to, to experiment. And I think if I've learned anything, it's uh, really key to communicate that from the outset because it's very different when you put a group of diverse people or businesses or people and businesses in this case together and say, okay, we're going to try something new here. And, you know, it asks of people and you have to ask of people to have more patience, more understanding, to not assume that people will know what it is you're referring to in short and to take the extra step to communicate a bit more and run the risk of over communicating and and those lessons were hard learned i mean they did not come easily or at the beginning that was you know something over the course of that time that you know was really necessary to reinforce um because like you said i mean sure you can you know you can beat match and you can mix like for like genres and seamlessly flow through but the reality is that you know you you're gonna have these collisions and i think if you celebrate that you also have like-minded people in that you may be very, very different, but the one thing you can at least have in common is respect and and a genuine appreciation for each other's differences. I mean, that makes all the difference. And so I think that, you know, kind of coming back to the HR side of things, there's a really interesting way you can structure that in terms of how you interview and how you set candidate profiles and how you also set the, you know, the, the cultural parameters within which you're going to operate um, because you invite people in who are going to build on that and not tear it down. I'm going to move on to the present version of uh, the Christina Kuyper story, but I feel like it's important to lay out that college bartender got very interested in cocktails, moved to Vancouver while the Olympics were happening at the peak of Vancouver, who, to be totally honest, were ahead in North America. It was like a top, it was like a top five, top 10 cocktail destination like before the rest of the continent 
picked up on it. You know, you, you've taught me immense things, not just about, you know, rum agricole or anything or combining flavors, but also just about considering an entire operation as opposed to uh, just how you fit into it or one specific night's service versus a week of service versus a month of service and figuring out what works, what doesn't, all of this. And you currently work for Cineplex. I do. And, you know, I think back to those Vancouver days, just as reference to how deep it went in, you know, in uh, in the craft of beverage and Simon Ogden slapping the back of my hand with a bar, like gently, but still, and saying, you know, as I was pouring what was supposed to be a quarter bar spoon of rose syrup into a cocktail, he said, I said a whisper of rose syrup, not a shout. <laughs> and, you know, it really made me respect the artistry by repetition. I mean, it was like a, a culinary practice behind the bar um, that really, you know, led to my, you know, just appreciation of, of what they were accomplishing in beverage as an art. Um, and again, all those things, you know, laddered up to, uh, and I think the, you know, continuing to, to manage businesses and continuing to build on, you know, a portfolio and, and, you know, and I, the, listen, the, the size of it in terms of volumes, I mean, you know, you go from managing businesses from five to 10 million to 15 to 20 to 40 to 60 to, you know, obviously prior to closure, you know, Cineplex is a one and a half billion dollar company. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's big big stakes. And what got me there was an amazing conversation at a dinner party. I started uh, meeting people at Cineplex and it was totally exploratory. Um, And I had, in the end, I look back on it, I think it was close to 11 interviews and there was no specific job. That's been kind of the sort of funny thing about um, my journey in, in my professional life has been, there have rarely been actual tangible jobs that I've applied for and then got. It's, it's usually I met someone or expressed interest or I applied for something and didn't get it. And then something else came up and that was very much the case. And so originally it was looking like an opportunity to manage. Okay. Well, actually we just really want to bring you into the exhibition side, which is the, the theater side. And I thought, Oh man, I don't have any experience in theaters. And uh, you know, what's this is going to be like, but you know what? I honestly, um, I think that what really rung true to me is that that sense of you know respect and appreciation of difference of perspectives, and um, that really rang true. And you know, I think one thing that I can really say about Cineplex throughout my entire experience, and that its reputation preceded it, was just how much of a incredibly warm and inviting and caring organization and culture that exists there. I mean, they often refer to it as a family. I get that because, you know, I mean, just the other day we had a, a manager in one of our theaters celebrating her 40th anniversary. Every year when we have our leadership summit and we, um, you know, provide, we, we hand out our different awards and prizes. You know, I mean, I remember the first one I attended and, and you know, we were standing for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20. Then it became 30 and then 40. And then, I mean, at that point, like every hands were just raw from clapping. And then 45 was like the, the highest uh, anniversary award given out that year. And I just, I mean, that's longer than I've been alive. And it's just, it's been so impressive to me just how long people have committed to this organization because they've committed to them. And so I kind of went into this just, you know, trusting that this is a great group of people and I, they would be supportive and I would figure it out. And I, you know, was hoping to bring some of my learnings to the table. Uh, and, you know, and that's how I got started in, in the theater business. 
And so your job with Cineplex, if you could, I know we just established that there isn't specific jobs you're ever hired for, but at this point, what is it that you do with Cineplex Odeon? Okay. So I went from a general manager in, you know, in Dubai of our operations in the Middle East to a director of operations at Icon Legacy Hospitality, which then became Icon Inc. As we also had a JV with Inc. Entertainment and expanded the the portfolio of, you know, of entertainment businesses to include, you know, hotels as well as restaurants and entertainment venues and bars and clubs to executive director um, of operations and guest experience in exhibition when I joined Cineplex. Now, about seven months in, big shakeup, uh, restructure. My boss, who'd been running, you know, 13 years, I think he'd been running the uh, the theater circuit, um, the exhibition department. Uh, he was asked to move over to what was a newly formed division called Amusement and Leisure, which encompassed our uh, P1AG company, which is a, a company that manages all of our amusement solutions. It actually operates in, you know, in the States, across the U.S., and across Canada. It was a product of, you know, eight companies coming together to form this, this one. And then this new area called location-based entertainment, which included the rec room and included Palladium. And then, you know, we were also at the time looking at uh, Top Golf and uh, other entertainment venues and brands that we wanted to bring into this this group. And so, you know, Paul and I worked so closely together. And he said, first he said, I'm leaving. And I went, what? <laughs> I mean, I just started here six months ago. What are you talking about? You're leaving. And he said, but I'm going to take you with me. Just give me a little time. And uh, a couple months later, he, he actually formalized my role moving into location-based entertainment, um, which is at that time being run uh, by the VP, um, Dave Terry. So my boss, who was the uh, senior vice president at the time, um, he, uh, you know, he was running the whole division, then Dave Terry was running location-based entertainment. And Dave is a, a veteran of uh, Planet Hollywood, Smith & Walensky, I mean, he's he's had, you know, like a 40 year plus career in entertainment and in hospitality, mostly across the U.S., but also with those brands opened up locations around the world, um, especially with Hard Rock. He was with Hard Rock for a really long time, opening locations all over the place. And so we, you know, worked together super closely. Uh, we had opened um, at that time. We had locations in Edmonton of the Rec Room, uh, Calgary. Toronto, and uh, and we were looking at expanding across the country, which we are still doing. And he, after a few months, decided to retire. Um, I'm not sure if I tired him out or if he was just ready to pass the torch. Uh, maybe a little bit of both. Uh, he was super kind and and very generous at this time. And then I was promoted to vice president of, uh, of operations and guest experience. Um, and I managed the rec room and Palladium and, uh, and new projects under location-based entertainment. I've been doing that the last two years um, and have had an amazing time building this team around these huge venues. I mean, they're just massive. I, they're, and, and the volumes are crazy. I mean, the, the locations themselves at peak, I mean, we were running buildings between nine and $26 million a year. I mean, it's just, it's the 40 to, well, the smallest is 30,000 30, to 60,000 square feet venues. I had to completely change my mindset around how to, um, you know, run businesses at that scale. But again, it was all about building a team. And I had some amazing people who were already working there, um, brought in some, some others that, you know, I had worked with before and some I had just newly met. And over the last, you know, two and a half years, we just built this amazing, amazing team that was able to span, you know, amusement and attractions, you know, dealing with new technologies like VR and AR, 
um, you know, getting into all kinds of different live entertainment, from cabaret to comedy to robot wars to drag brunches to concerts, um, you know, to K-pop events. And then also building on the food and beverage program with some amazing professionals that, you know, had to deal with both full service dining and, you know, quick service dining in the same, under the same roof. The last couple of years and then. <laughs> well, this, is, this is, this is what I was going to say is going from all of that team building and the crazy revenues that all these giant venues are making. Obviously the last six months has been a wild turn and a lot has been made, especially from uh, the independent side of restaurants, but even at something functioning at the level that Cineplex does and all your entertainment venues, what are you doing about COVID? Oh, absolutely. And you know what? I, and that's why, you know, I said so many of those things I learned in the past have really served me well and I think served many of us well in terms of resilience and ingenuity and, you know, and bringing people together, you know, because it's that's really what we've had to do over these last seven months, you know. So first of all, I would say that, you know, as an organization, I mean, Cineplex did just one of the most amazing things, which was although we weren't able to, you know, admittedly keep all of our employees in every single one of our theaters and venues because at that point we just were not operating. But they said, listen, you know, we're committed and we want to see this through and we believe in you. And they, you know, all of the the, the full-time and permanent employees and salaried employees, you know, of which there are about 3,000, kept everybody on, like everyone just said, listen, you know, we're, let's all, let we had, you know, we had to agree to, we all agreed collectively to a tiered system of taking a bit of a pay cut for, for a couple months, but we all stayed on. And in that time, we spent time, building our delivery model. We already had delivery running at all of our theaters, but then also, you know, introduced them into the rec room and then more recently at Palladium. Really worked with the team managing the Cineplex store because we obviously had so many more movie rentals and so much more digital consumption. Um, you know, we, we worked on, you know, working on all these different projects to just manage our businesses better. You know, we've looked at all of our customer feedback and all of our, um, you know, all of the different internal scoring that we use to, to you know, to get the, the guest feedback and, and to measure it and said, you know, when, when we open up, because we knew we were going to, when we reopen, we are going to open better. We did you know, than we operated before. We're going to deliver better guest experiences. We're going to deliver better you know, um, value, we're going to find different ways to get through this. And of course, you know, listen, you can't offset all the sales that you would have had if we had, you know, the list of blockbusters and the full capacities allowed. But we said, listen, we, this is about trust. It's about developing trust um, or, or redeveloping trust, you know, or building on the trust that we already have with some of our guests that have been with us for so long, with many of our guests who have known us and have, you know, have, have, trusted us for, you know, their entertainment, um, for so many years, really hard line on, on health and safety and cleaning and, and just decided to open up the best way that we knew we could. And we made it a national standard. We said, no matter how many cases are in one province and how few cases are in another, we're going to have the same standard execution everywhere. Because the first thing is we needed to make sure our employees felt safe. And that was the only way that we were going to have our guests feel safe. So, We've reopened. Uh, we started reopening June 15th. Um, and between June 15th and August 5th, we got all the rec rooms and palladiums open. Um, and then from um, 
I think it was from about June 18th until the very beginning of September, we got all of our theaters open. Um, and that just took a bit more time because again, you know, we're, we're also, uh, held to the content that we, that we can play. And, um, and, you know, Tenet was a huge release for us. Um, you know, maybe not the same kind of commercial or mainstream, uh, title that would have drawn the masses, but it was definitely very meaningful in that, you know, Christopher Nolan is always dedicated, um, his, you know, his time and his career as profession to uh, the cinematic arts, and you know, for the diehard movie lovers and for the Christopher Nolan fans out there, it was uh, it was a real message, you know, of solidarity that he still held to a release date this year. Um, but you know, we're not out of the woods. In fact, you know, as as infections increase, as um, you know, as closures again are happening, you know, we're we're at about um, 44 locations today, as of today, that you know are, are closed again, at least for you know another few weeks, and potentially more in Ontario as we listen to announcements today. It's you know I think what's been amazing about what I've seen is the resilience and the commitment. And as I said, you know, still celebrating the milestones, having a manager celebrate their 40th anniversary, and and their team put together this reel of every major success, like every major blockbuster every year of the last 40 years for them um, as, a, as a memento of their career. And I just, I just think that in all of this adversity, I've just really seen these amazing moments of solidarity and commitment and positivity that have just, you know, been so inspiring um, given how challenging it is and how much unknown we're facing. So what? Would early this is I, we've been talking for like an hour. Uh, what would what would early two thousands psychology student Christina Kuypers think of all of the changes and evolutions that you've gone through? Like very obviously, first year university student analyzing current Christina Kuypers. What does she think? Well, you know, I don't. She would have uh, necessarily have thought that you know that during the a pandemic where, where things have been more uncertain than ever before, that we would have gone through a restructure with it, which then would have led to an additional promotion. Um, because, you know, about four months ago, I became the senior vice president of revenue management. So now I oversee all food and beverage and all amusement and live entertainment and groups and events for uh, all of our theaters and, and our uh, location-based entertainment venues. And, and I think that, you know, that find any logic in the mind of my, you know, of my 21 year old self. Um, because, you know, who, whoever thinks that you're going to get these opportunities in times of, of serious challenge and, and adversity, but, but what I've come to realize and what I would encourage everyone, you know, um, that, that certainly I've had the, you know, the, the luck and the, the good fortune of meeting and, and, you know, talking to is that it's grit and, and perseverance are, you know, and determination are things that you have to develop yourself. And, you know, it's in those moments of adversity that you need to even double down on believing in your own ability to overcome um, obstacles, whether they are, you know, the imposter syndrome I talked about, like, you know, am I going to be good enough to do this? Do I know how to do this? Or whether it's, you know, genuine obstacles around, like, you know, I think about financial literacy, I think about, um, you know, communication and all those pieces that weave themselves through your professional life and your personal life. And it's so important to, to really recognize that, you know, if you've been able to learn how to do things before, you will surely be able to learn how to overcome this now. But you do need to ask for help. You do need to communicate and you need to know that it takes time and there are going to be mistakes and you've got to find ways to deal with 
own kind of struggles with what those mistakes feel like. Um, and sometimes it letting people down, including yourself. But the, the main thing, and I think what have, you know, certainly has resonated from entrepreneurs that I've worked with before is, you know, the, the successful entrepreneur, the successful, um, you know, professional is the person who gets knocked down 89 times and gets up a hundred. It really, that, that last time that you get up again is the time that really counts every time. So there's, there's nothing that you, you know, you can't do. Um, but you just gotta, you know, you got to focus and, you know, you've got to take it step by step and you've got to deliver. If there's one thing I've learned from working for a public company, it's that, you know, no matter what the obstacles are, you have to break down what you've got into chunks and you've got to be able to deliver. So if a project seems super intimidating or a problem seems really challenging, can you break it down to four things and then get that first thing done? You know, get it done in a timeline, get it done with the right people and just keep going. And then once you get the first thing done, get the second thing done. And before you know it, you've actually tackled all of it. Um, and it seems way less intimidating than it was from the outset. This has been one of the deepest, most verbose, but like I knew that when I asked you to be a part of it. Uh, right, like, but, but, but this is the deepest anyone's gone on this podcast so far. Thank you for hanging out for a whole hour uh, on the phone on a Friday when I'm sure you have a million things that you're supposed to be doing. I really appreciate it. Josh, I always have time for you. And, you know, and again, I, and I say this very openly, if I had had half of the transparency and help that, <laughs> that, you know, um, that, uh, that I, I needed, you know, back in the day, I, I would have just been, you know, that much further ahead. And so I, I look at it as how can you be part of the solution? And so it's an open door, you know, and I'd be happy to, for anybody who I can, you know, help, um, share or introduce someone to, you know, it's, uh, it's an open invitation because I, I think there's so much more we can all do. Um, but you know, we've got to be open about what we face in terms of, you know, challenges and failures and our successes and, you know, got to make it easier for the people who come after us. That's the main thing, you know, you're going to fight different challenges, but you know, as far as I can help it, you know, you're not going to fight the same ones that I faced. Like we've got to at least do that. So Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for your friendship. You've been amazing. And uh, I just really enjoyed it today. Thanks. Real quick before you go, how do people track you down? Definitely on LinkedIn. You can find there, first name, last name, Christina Kuypers. Um, if you prefer, you can also find me on Instagram. Uh, and it's also Christina Kuypers on there. So either way, however you want to connect, just uh, get at me and, um, and we'll, you know, we'll find a way to, to get you through whatever challenge you're facing. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Josh. All right. That was a long one. Thanks again so much for listening. If you have any ideas of people I should be talking to, please let me know. At Bartender Atlas on Instagram is probably the best way to find me. If you have an hour or two to listen to two old friends talk about their careers, then please take time to read up on any issues plaguing the world right now, especially things that relate to indigenous rights, black people's rights, and please do lots of research about political parties in your part of the world. Until next time, be well, John Spartan. recommend starting with a book like Born a Crime because the narrative is so engaging. It's so interesting and well-written. The pace is good. It's broken into chapters that follow his life. So you can, you know, for, especially if you're busy, you know, you can pick it up, put it down and not feel like you've lost the narrative arc. 
Um, and, uh, and, you know, frankly deals with some very heavy issues around, you know, around race and segregation that are so entrenched, but tells them in such a way that you can, you can really identify and internalize and not feel like you're reading a textbook so much as you're really understanding someone's life perspective and the way that they grew up, not questioning things until later on, because they were just such a part of their actual life. And that, you know, you were recognizing that apartheid is a product of study of enslavement and segregation from so many different parts of the world that it was actually studied and implemented as the best way to keep people marginalized. Yeah. And I never knew that before. Well, yeah. And, you know, beyond any of that, I imagine reading Trevor Noah's entire experience rings true to you as, you know, a biracial kid with a Dutch exactly. dad. <laughs> 